Hey guys, it's Tana. I'm happy to see you here for another episode of Oddity Potity. I've been working on a book and getting a Patreon started, so I hope you'll forgive me if the episodes are a teeny bit shorter than normal. I've been working hard on those extras that I hope will be worth the extra effort. In the meantime, I've been traveling a lot and gathering all the odd that I can share with you up in the pod. I've been working my way through staying at some of the most haunted places in America, but there's one that tops the list of most haunted every year. I stayed there many years ago, and sure enough, I had a paranormal encounter. I'm talking about the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, which, like a lot of French Quarter buildings, has had many incarnations. Before it was a hotel, it was one of the most important opera houses in the United States, with a ballroom that has its own storied history. Later, it was a Civil War hospital, a convent, and an orphanage, and probably home to more than a few spicy personalities in between. So, if you're looking for a place that houses more than just your garden variety ghosts, keep listening. Because the Bourbon Orleans Hotel more than fits the bill. much I love the Big Easy. I'm headed back down there soon, and I hope to try and decipher the location of the Seven Gates of Guinea, which I've previously been unsuccessful at, and I will probably continue to be unsuccessful at. If true voodoo masters can't do it, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I can, but I'm happy to keep trying. I'll most likely walk around for miles and then convince myself that I burned enough calories to gorge on some char-grilled oysters at Felix. Then I'll hit up Muriel's for happy hour Irish coffees and finish the night off with a drunken basket of fries at the ghost bar. Lather, rinse, repeat, all in the name of research. I've been pulling that same trick for years. I've always been in search of magic and probably always will be, even though I'm very skeptical that it actually exists. Yeah, I know I'm here every week telling you that it does, but in my billion years of existence, I could count on both hands the times that I've actually had paranormal experiences that I could not explain beyond a reasonable doubt, and I'd probably even have a few fingers left over at that. One of those experiences happened many years ago when I stayed at the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Once you hear about its colorful history, you'll see why, and why it has more documented paranormal activity than almost any hotel in America. The Bourbon Orleans Hotel was originally built with the intent of housing a theater called the Theater de Orleans, but it took a while to get there. If you think construction of houses takes forever nowadays, just listen to this. According to the Bourbon Orleans official website, construction of the building actually began in 1806, but it still wasn't complete six years later when the War of 1812 broke out. For context, the War of 1812 was when England decided that Even though a bunch of its rebellious pilgrims ran off and founded America to get away from them, they were going to go ahead and just take America away from their naughty children. Clearly, that didn't work out, but the British gave it their best shot. They set their sights on New Orleans because of its advantages as a port city. General Andrew Jackson quickly assembled a team of Tennessee, Kentucky, and Louisiana residents, members of the Choctaw Native Tribe, and our old pal John Lafitte and his pirates to fight the British. No one wanted a British invasion. No one wanted to go back to minding the king and eating mushy peas, even though they are delicious. Nope, Americans wanted the freedom to decide whether to eat mushy peas or not, so pretty much everyone pitched in to help. But when England attacked, the battle was sorely one-sided. 
there were only 5,700 Americans versus 8,000 British troops. The Americans fought like hell, and at the end of it all, a total of only 62 Americans were killed, wounded, and or captured versus 2,034 the British. After such a resounding butt-whipping, the British crawled at it out of there, and the victory basically put General Jackson on the road to presidency, and immortality is a statue in Jackson Square. I said all this to say that the people of NOLA weren't super concerned with attending a theater while all this BS was going on, but afterwards they definitely were ready to party. The War of 1812 concluded on February 18th of 1815, and just eight months later, in October of that same year, the curtain raised on the first performance at the Theater d'Orleans. The theater was designed by a Haitian refugee named Louis Tabari and boasted 1,300 seats. If you've ever been to a Broadway show in New York, that's close to the same size as some of the larger ones like the Majestic and the Imperial, which opened more than 100 years later, so this was a huge deal. Inside the theater, the creme de la creme of New Orleans society got the best seats to Parisian plays that were performed in French. Even average Joes could watch from the cheap seats. Unfortunately, it didn't last long. Less than a year later, in September of 1816, a fire destroyed Louis Tabari's creation. Back then, the quarter was constantly under the threat of fire, so even though that sucked, the land was quickly snatched up by another entrepreneur named John Davis. Davis was also a Haitian immigrant, and he set out to restore Louis Tabari's vision. In 1817, he rebuilt the Theater de Orleans and connected it to a grand ballroom named the Orleans Ballroom, which was designed by architect Henry Latrobe, who was also the designer of the U.S. Capitol. Afterward, Latrobe remained in New Orleans and designed the central tower of the St. Louis Cathedral, which was the last architectural project he completed before one of those dang New Orleans mosquitoes got him, and he died of yellow fever in 1820. Latrobe's beautiful ballroom would eventually become part of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel, but for decades it was his own entity and thus cultivated its own sordid past. It was a popular site for charity balls, which were just an excuse for Richie Rich types to dress up and show off their money, as well as Mardi Gras carnival balls and masquerades that were reserved for only the highest of society to attend. For extra, extra large events, the ballroom could be joined to the theater, which created one gigantic ballroom. When this happened, gambling rooms were created for those who weren't very good dancers and who were not particularly smooth with the ladies and who preferred to blow their money on a game of blackjack rather than donating it to charity. If you've ever heard the name Lafayette, which, if you live in my neck of the woods or in Louisiana or Mississippi, you definitely have. The name came from the Marquis de Lafayette, who was a French military officer who fought in the American Revolutionary War and in the French Revolution. He was an all-around butt kicker, and he was considered to be a national hero in both France and America. In 1826, he visited New Orleans for a week, and he spent most of his entertainment dollars at the theater and the ballroom. So as you can see, some pretty famous types really enjoyed that theater and ballroom. Some of the famous New Orleans quadroon balls were also held at the Orleans Ballroom. I've talked about quadroon balls in previous episodes, but in case you missed those, let me rehash. These were events at which wealthy Creole aristocrats would court young mixed-race women with the intention of taking them on as mistresses and often starting second families with them. As often happens, anytime you mix alcohol with dumb dudes fighting for a woman's attention, duels and sometimes even deaths occurred during these balls. 
Perhaps one of the most historically ironic events in the history of the New Orleans Ballroom allegedly happened in 1828, when General Andrew Jackson announced his candidacy for presidency on the 13th anniversary of the Battle of New Orleans. Legend has it that he first made this announcement on the floor of the Orleans Ballroom. Keep all of these stories in mind when we get to the hauntings that people have experienced while staying at the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Because not only did the theater contribute to the dramatic spooks, the ballroom contributed to it as well. For almost two decades, John Davis ran the theater and its grand ballroom. According to Wikipedia, in the first five seasons of its opening, Davis's theater company presented 140 operas, which included 52 American premieres. During the summer months when heat and humidity were high and armpits were stinky, the opera company hit the road in search of cooler climates. Each year, they toured Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore, and by doing this, they brought national recognition to the theater. Soon, New Orleans was considered the opera capital of the U.S. In 1837, John's son Pierre took over as director of the theater New Orleans. Pierre continued the traveling summer theater, and the theater remained a dominant arts mecca, while the ballroom continued to court America's most rich and famous. Important opera singers from all over the world performed on the theater stage, notably a soprano named Julie Calvé. Julie joined the company in its first season that Pierre ran it, and she stayed on for the next decade. When Pierre handed the torch off to a new owner after 16 years of running the theater, he passed that torch on to a man named Charles Bordesque. I am 100% sure that I just butchered that name, so we're going to call him Charles B., Charles B. just so happened to be the husband of the soprano, Julie Calvey. So Charles B. and Julie continued to run the theater in the ballroom to international acclaim until 1859. This is when some major drama ensued, even dramatic by theater standards. Remember, John Davis had bought this burnt-out husk of the original theater and built a new theater and ballroom in its place, which Pierre later took over. Well, apparently Pierre only handed over his directorship and not ownership of the actual building to Charles B. That belonged to someone else whose name that I could not ferret out. Whomever it was, Charles B. got into a slap fight with him, and in 1859, he flounced out of there and built his own theater, which he called the French Opera House. Charles was out for blood, too, because the French Opera House was like two blocks away from the Theater New Orleans. And even though he didn't own the building, he was the opera director, so Charles flounced out with the entire opera company flouncing right out behind him. And so, all those fancy carnival and Mardi Gras balls and all that gambling and the benefits and receptions and concerts all moved to the French Opera House. If you were into Opera House ghosts, the old French Opera House is now the Four Point Sheridan on the corner of Bourbon and Toulouse Streets. As for the Theater New Orleans and its grand ballroom, it sat alone and abandoned with its own ghosts because Charles B.'s move essentially put it out of business. I picture those ghosts like the one in The Shining, all creepy and dead, but still partying. No one got to party for too long, though, because the Civil War was on the horizon. It began in April of 1861, and almost exactly a year later, Union soldiers captured New Orleans and the French Opera House was shut down as well. During this time, the theater and ballroom was used as a makeshift hospital for both Union and Confederate soldiers, as so many homes and commercial residents were during that god-awful war. The war concluded in April of 1865, but there wasn't even time to wash the bloodstains off the floor before another fire raged through the French Quarter the very next year in 1866. The theater was once again destroyed, but this time the ballroom survived. 
Once again, the beautiful theater sat as a burnout husk of an eyesore until someone saw potential in it. In 1881, both the Orleans Theater and the ballroom were purchased by the Sisters of the Holy Family. The Sisters of the Holy Family was the first African-American religious order in the United States. The sisters converted the buildings into a convent and a school for African-American girls called St. Mary's Academy. The sisters also purchased the adjacent law and built an orphanage for African-American girls called St. John Birchman's Asylum, as well as a courtyard and playground for the orphanage. According to the Bourbon Orleans website, this very same courtyard and playground is now the site of the current courtyard and pool of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. Knowing how mean young girls are because, well, I was one, I imagine there was some pretty gnarly juju left behind on that playground. Probably where the scariest of the hotel ghosts come from. Prepubescent hormonal ghosts. Another thing that left behind some bad juju, or rather, some sad juju, was that freaking yellow fever. Between 1878 and 1900, yellow fever killed more than 4,000 people in New Orleans. Unfortunately, it also took the lives of many of the nuns and the school children in the school and the orphanage. After 83 years of doing the Lord's work, the Sisters of the Holy Family had grown to over 400 nuns strong. Unfortunately, this meant that they'd also outgrown their French Quarter buildings and they needed some bigger digs. So in 1964, they sold their properties to the Bourbon Kings Hotel Corporation, which was spearheaded by a man named Wilson P. Abraham. Wilson P. set out with plans to restore the former Orleans Ballroom and build a hotel. Just a couple years later, Wilson P.'s vision was realized. On July 18, 1966, the Bourbon Orleans Hotel had its grand opening, and thus began the building's second act in its claim to fame, which was being one of the most haunted hotels in America. It's been consistently ranked in the top 10 in magazines like USA Today, Architectural Digest, and Forbes as most haunted. And last week when I was finishing up research for the Lizzie Borden episode, I found a list where it was ranked number two in the world for hauntings. Having experienced it myself, I'd have to agree that it's definitely haunted. But before I tell you what happened to me there, let's talk about some of the hotel's most seen ghosts. If you know anything about theaters, you know that they all have a theater ghost. Given that the Bourbon Orleans was once the premier theater in the United States, it makes sense that it had its fair share of spooks and probably some left behind as well. In fact, it's reported that at least 20 separate spiritual entities have been identified as permanent residents of the hotel. However, there are four distinct ones that you're most likely to encounter if you visit. The first, and possibly the oldest, is that of a ballroom dancer. Today, the ballroom of the Bourbon Orleans Hotel is the very same one, albeit restored, that was originally built and partied in all those centuries ago. Partied in, dueled in, and gambled in, if you were too socially awkward to do anything else. Since the building reopened as a hotel, countless people have seen the phantom figure of a beautiful woman dancing beneath the ballroom's crystal chandelier. The figure moves and twirls around the dance floor with her arms outstretched as if she's holding an invisible dance partner. Like it's a ghost who's dancing with the ghost of a ghost. Apparently she's shy and she'll hide even if you don't happen to spot her because there have been equal number of reports made by guests and workers of the sound of rustling behind the draperies in the ballroom. It's the sound that one would make if they were hiding behind the curtains. A few brave souls have dared to whip those curtains back and expose whomever was hiding behind them, only to find the window seat behind them completely empty and devoid of human life. 
Others have claimed to have seen pools of blood on the ballroom floor, which one might expect to find after a pair of Creole knuckleheads fought to the death in a duel over some poor woman that probably wanted nothing to do with either of them. Man, as many of these hotel haunting episodes that I've done, I have to say that I don't think that I could hack being a hotel worker. The next most often seen ghost is that of a wandering Confederate soldier, seemingly unaware that he's actually dead. He's most often seen on the sixth and the third floor, and he's impossible to miss because he walks up and down the hallway with a heavy limp, tattered clothes, and open flesh wounds. When I stayed there, that's the ghost I hoped to see because he sounded like the most gruesome. Also, because I was a lot younger and stupider, and I thought back then that all I had to do was tell someone their business and all their problems would be solved. I'd just inform him that he was dead and voila, ghosts be gone. Pro tip, does not work with either ghosts or humans. Somehow, telling people what their problem is only makes them angrier. Go figure. The third most common ghost is more like a group of ghosts. These are believed to be the lingering spirits of the nuns and the children who perished during the yellow fever epidemic in the late 1800s. There have been sightings of nuns and my worst nightmare, as you all know, kid ghosts. The most frequently seen is that of a little girl who rolls her ball and chases it down the sixth floor corridor. Yeah, a little girl ghost who just chases that ball rolling down the hall. There's also often heard the pitter-patter of little feet in the hallways when there are no little feet visible, and children's laughter when there are no children about. Some have reported seeing children praying or nuns watching real-life children play out in the courtyard. Both guests and hotel employees have felt children tugging on their clothes, only to turn around and find no one there. I saved the fourth most often seen ghost for last, because she's scarier than all the last three combined. It's the ghost of a nun who committed suicide in room 644. Over the decades, hotel guests have reported blood-curdling screams coming from behind the door of room 644, even when the room was unoccupied. An article on NOLA.com reported that some who have heard the screams said it sounded like someone was being tortured or was in excruciating pain. Others who've stayed in room 644 have awakened to find a nun standing over them. If that happened to me, I would immediately become deceased and join the rest of the ghosts in the Bourbon Orleans. Okay, you may have noticed that a lot of the paranormal activity happens on the sixth floor. I have to wonder what's going on there and why all the trauma seems to be concentrated in that particular area. I wonder if that's just where all the bad stuff happened or if the super traumatic incident in room 644 drew the spirits up there, if that's even a thing that can happen. They say that spirits are drawn to energy since they have none of their own. Maybe that's where all the living people get the life scared out of them so all the ghosts congregate up there to suck the life force right out of them. Whatever the case, it's no surprise that a 200-plus-year-old building has a few ghosts in it, especially one that's been reincarnated so many times as so many different things. I feel like the drama of housing theater people for almost 50 years alone would produce enough emotional fuel to haunt that place for eternity. I can say that because I have a minor in theater and I am quite the dramatodon myself. Then you add the suffering of war, plague, fires, and all those people who drank, gambled, danced, and dueled their lives away, and you have layers upon layers of potential spirits trapped inside the Bourbon Orleans Hotel. So, the question is, which of these ghosts did I encounter during my stay at the Bourbon Orleans? Well, I'm not sure. It happened many years ago. I took my mom to the Big Easy for Halloween with the intent of scaring the pants off of her. My mom is very easily spooked. 
She's the kind of gal who you love to hide behind a door and jump out and scare her because she screams so loud and freaks out so bad that you need to have a defibrillator installed on every wall in the house to revive her. Great fun, that lady is. So I thought it would be hilarious to take her to a haunted hotel and prank her, which I did and which she hated me for. So I guess what happened to me later was well-deserved. We had a room with two queen beds. Mine was next to the closet. It was one of those sliding closet doors that pretty much takes up the whole wall. And on that was mounted a huge mirror. After a long day of pranking mom and trying to find that Confederate soldier and drinking a bunch of hurricanes, we ended the night by crashing into our respective beds. I'd fully intended to get up and prank mom some more, but I was so tired that I fell right to sleep. So when I awoke feeling the blanket being pulled off me, I figured mom was getting revenge by pranking me. I rolled over planning to go raw and scare her back. But when I did, I saw her snoring away fast asleep in her own bed. Thinking that I must have dreamt it, I pulled the covers up to my chin and tried to drift back off to sleep. But after a few seconds, the covers began to slowly, stealthily slide downwards away from my chin, past my neck and onto my chest until I grabbed the edge of the blanket and yanked it back up. Now in full cardiac arrest, I rolled over to face the wall, gripping the blanket over my face. And for the longest, nothing happened. I started to relax and eventually my heart rate slowed down and I began to think that I might be able to fall asleep again. And that's when I felt a tug at the blanket near my feet. Instinctively, I opened my eyes, which was a large mistake. Because in the reflection of the closet mirror, I saw the blanket pulling itself off of my body. Obviously, I did not die of the second full-fledged cardiac arrest I went into at that moment, but I thought I was going to. I yanked those covers all the way up over my head, and I stayed inside my blanket cocoon for the rest of the night. I just knew in my heart of hearts that if I opened my eyes again, I would see a dead nun or a bloody Confederate soldier standing next to me, and then I would be deceased for reals. I'm not sure I ever fell back asleep that night, but whatever was messing with me didn't bother me again. Based on reading what others have experienced and the history of the building, I'm guessing that it was one of the convent children messing with me, possibly as a revenge prank for me pranking the pants off my mom all weekend. I didn't tell mom what had happened until we were well on our way home the next day. Yeah, I was super tempted to climb into bed with my mommy and hide, but I knew if I did, we'd have to pack our bags and check into a Motel 6 because there would be no keeping my mom inside that hotel if I'd told her what had happened. As I was recounting this story, I realized that I do a lot of hiding under my blanket, and it also sounded a lot like what had happened to me at the Limp Mansion, only in that case, something was pulling my leg. I bet a lot of you think that I'm pulling your leg right now, but I promise you, both of these experiences are among the handful that I can't reason away. I mean, I actually saw the blanket sliding down. I guess I could be prone to tactile and visual sleep hallucinations, but until a psychologist confirms that, I will continue to believe that the Bourbon Orleans Hotel is definitely haunted. Well, that's all I have for today. I'm about to get back to working on those other projects I mentioned. I cannot thank you guys enough for listening, for sharing the podcast with others, and for supporting me on social media. I appreciate it more than you will ever know. I hope y'all come back and see me again next time. Same place, same time, for a little more history and a little more haunt. i see y'all then.